uh, that, that comes before. Uh, but hopefully now you can focus on the sermon with that answer in place. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he, that's God, struck them, his people that is, as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sins, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore he who made them will, have no compa- will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word in which you clearly speak to us of your great love for us. Lord, as we look to this passage, I pray for a couple things. First, Lord, I pray that you would use it to make us a more heavenly-minded people, that we would have eyes that look, hopefully, to the future, to, what, to where you are taking us because of what Christ has done. But, Lord, that we would also, in the meantime, be people who find joy and reason to give thanks even in the difficulties of our affliction. Lord, that is something the the world will not be able to understand. But I pray that as we look at this passage, you would give us greater clarity of vision so that we would see the great work you are doing and how you prepare us for the great things you have in store for us because of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. To grasp our passage uh, this evening, I need to take a moment to set the stage for you. The book of Isaiah is the record of God's ministry through the prophet Isaiah to his chosen people of Judah. Now in the time of Judah, the big topic of conversation, the things that people talked about at the water cooler, uh, it was probably most likely foreign policy. Assyria was the dominant power at that time, 
And little Judah, fearing for her own safety, had to decide whether she would uh, enter into an alliance with uh, the mighty Assyrians uh, or not. And at the heart of this debate was the question of whether uh, Judah would trust the Lord their God for protection or whether Judah would turn to the idol-worshipping Assyrians for security. Now, eventually, when Judah's closest neighbors launch an attack on her, uh, she runs not to the Lord, but to Assyria, even taking money from the Lord's treasury to pay for these pagan Assyrians to come to their aid. This running to human powers and false gods was a denial of the Lord, a denial of his promises, a denial of his power. Now, this is what's going on when we come to Isaiah chapter 5. Now, if you've got your Bibles, it would be really helpful for you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5 because Isaiah 5 is critical background for our own chapter. Because like Isaiah 27, Isaiah 5 is a song that God is singing about a vineyard. And this, the language of a vineyard, it's symbolic language that God uses to refer to his people. So the Lord, who's portrayed as the vine dresser, he, in Isaiah 5, digs a, a vineyard on a fertile hill. He labors to clear the hill of, of stones and other things that are in the way. He, he sows the seed. He uh, constructs a watchtower in the middle of his vineyard so that he would have a, a, a point from which to look out and, and watch out over his people to protect them from any threats or anything that would do it harm. He uh, also hews a a wine vat because after all his painstaking efforts, the Lord expects the field to yield rich grapes. And yet the surprise of this passage is that the field yielded wild grapes, sour grapes. These were miserable grapes and not in keeping with the purpose of the vine dresser. And Isaiah 5 is a a parable of God's people. Judah, whom God had brought to a choice land uh, where he had cleared out uh, their their enemies. Uh, God had, had, had kept watch out over his people and he had placed them in this land. And rather than his people yielding the sweet fruit of obedience and wholehearted commitment, God's people had forsaken him for other nations and other gods. Because of the the people's disobedience, chapter 5 ends with a most terrifying note. It's a picture of of God's actions toward his people who had rejected him and despised him. Just so that you can uh, get the temperature of of things, look at verse 25 in in chapter 5. There we read, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. And then you go on to read that the Lord uh, set a signal for uh, the the foreign nations to come, like sharks that that could detect blood in the water, and the nations are, are to descend on Israel, ready to devour. It's a pretty frightening picture in many ways. But now that you've got Isaiah 5 in front of you, I want you to sort of take that and put that, uh, file that away in the back of your mind. 
Uh, Because as we come to our passage, Isaiah 27, this is going to uh, be particularly helpful because Isaiah 27 presents a really different picture, especially the first six verses. In Isaiah 27, God is speaking about the same vineyard, the same vineyard as he is in chapter 5. And yet, in chapter 5, the Lord was clearly angry with his people, so angry that he sends the nations crashing down upon them in judgment. But now, as we'll see as we we look more closely at our text this evening, the vineyard exists under much different conditions, and God's own speech toward her is very different. So we're going to look first at the vineyard song and the conditions of this vineyard, and then we're going to have to ask, why the difference between chapter uh, 5 and chapter 27? Well, there are four things uh, that I want to point out, four conditions Uh, of the Lord's vineyard uh, as he sings this song. And these four conditions will produce a most positive result. The first condition is that the Lord protects his vineyard, you'll notice. He's the keeper of it. He's the the watcher of it. He's the one who guards over it. We see this mentioned a couple times in verse 3. It says, I, the Lord, am its keeper. The grammar of the statement stresses that it's the Lord, not some bleary-eyed security guard or even some mighty king, but it is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who guards his vineyard. He goes on to say, in order that no one might harm her, I guard her night and day. The emphasis there is is that this is a 24-7 thing that God is doing, guarding and protecting his people. So the Lord's song about his vineyard includes this assurance that he is the one who continually guards his people and keeps her safe. Now, whereas in Isaiah 5, the Lord removes his hedges of protection from around his people and he removes the walls that guard her, now in this day, he reasserts that he is the ever-watchful keeper of his people. The second condition of the vineyard is that the Lord provides for his vineyard. In the day that's in view, every moment the Lord waters his vineyard. He nourishes his vineyard. He uh, provides sustenance to his vineyard. The Lord's vineyard is the object of his constant, never take a moment off care. Now, whereas if we were to read Isaiah 5 very closely, you'd see that the Lord cuts off rain from his wayward vineyard. In this day, no water, no nourishment will be withheld from it. Also true of the vineyard, according to the Lord's song, is that the Lord is pacified. Now, as the parent of a six-month-old, I'm very familiar uh, with this word because when uh, my son starts to wail, I give him a pacifier, right, to soothe his anger. To be pacified means to have one's anger quelled or to be brought to a condition of peace. And that's the third condition enjoyed by the Lord's vineyard. The Lord is pacified. He's at peace with his people. He has no wrath. That's what the Lord sings. There's no conflict between the Lord and between his people. Again, what a striking contrast this is between uh, chapter 27 and chapter 5, where in chapter 5, God says that the, uh, the sins of his people have kindled his anger and his hand is stretched out against them still. But in the day in view in Isaiah 27, the Lord says he has no wrath. There's no anger remaining for his people. He's been pacified. His wrath has been exchanged for peace. 
between him and his people. But God's song doesn't just speak of the cooling of hostilities between the Lord and his vineyard. It also speaks of the warmth of his love for her. This is the fourth condition in which the vineyard grows. The Lord loves his vineyard. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 in particular is what surprised me in the best possible way when I was reading through this recently. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Now in chapter 5, the Lord removes his hand from his vineyard such that worthless briars and thorns uh, grow up and they take over the vineyard. It's a, it's a sign of, of barrenness. And it's worth noting here in chapter 27 that the Lord says that there's an, an, an absence. He can't find any thorns and briars here, anything unproductive or intrusive such as briars and thorns. They're gone. There, there's no in, uh, unproductive impurities in this vineyard. But besides that, the Lord, notice what the Lord wishes. The Lord wishes that there was some weed or threat that could, uh, he could attack to show how deeply and how dearly he cares for his vineyard. Now, at the risk of perhaps um, revealing too much about myself, uh, one of the things that I'll sometimes uh, do that causes Suzanne to roll her eyes uh, is, is that um, when, uh, as happens from time to time, she bangs her shin against the kitchen chair or, or pinches uh, her fingers uh, in the cupboard, I'll leap to her side, uh, fists up, ready to take on the noble cause against whatever has uh, dared to wound my beloved. Now, of course, Suzanne shakes her head when I start uttering threats against the uh, dining room chair for messing with my wife. But this ridiculous display proceeds from my desire to show my wife how much I love her. I'm prepared, I'm eager to demonstrate how much I'm for Suzanne by taking on any foe, even if it's the offending cupboards. Now, gentlemen, do you... Do you kind of know this depth of love and delight that I'm talking about? Maybe you've been stirred uh, uh, by it uh, uh, with regards to your wife or, or to your girlfriend, right? That you just have this e eager desire because you delight in her so much that you want to prove your commitment, prove your love to her. Ladies, isn't there something uh, deeply honoring and deeply attractive about having someone care about you so deeply that they're ready to spring themselves into battle for you. Well, that's the kind of love and delight which God speaks about having for his people. God says about his vineyard, I only wish that there was something that would put me to the test to, so that I could show how deeply and how dearly I love my church. Now, if I can put this into New Testament language here, if you're joined to Jesus by trusting in him, relying in his death and resurrection for salvation, belonging to his church, then this is the song, this is God's song that will be sung over you. Your maker, your creator will sing over you as part of his vineyard, his church, that this is his overflowing love to you in Christ. A love that is so deep, so rich, that it makes him wish that there was still yet opportunities for him to show his ardor. And so these four blessed conditions, the Lord's protection, his provision, his pacification, and his love, this leads to only one result. The flourishing or prosperity of the vineyard, which we see about in verse 6. 
Jacob and Israel are both references that signify all the people of God uh, by faith. God's people, his vineyard, shall take root. They'll blossom, they'll bud, and they'll produce fruit that fills the whole earth. God's church will be vibrant, life-evidencing, and fruitful on the day which Isaiah speaks about here. Again, this is very different than the picture that we see in Isaiah 5 where the vineyard bears wild grapes. Here, as a result of these conditions, the, the, the vineyard produces rich and abundant fruit. So what a, a massive separation that seems to be uh, between the unproductive vineyard in chapter 5, which God gives over to the briars and the thorns, and the vineyard in our text this evening. So what happened? What happened? How do, how do we explain this? Now, well, there's a sense in which verses 2 through 6 are true for the Christian uh, now. Uh, we, we see that, that God's promises to, to keep his church and nourish her, for instance, those are true even now. And yes, God's wrath towards his people and their sins, uh, that's been poured out exhaustively uh, upon Jesus at the cross so that there's no wrath that God has toward his people. Yes, that's true now. But... I think this text points us forward. One important clue for understanding this passage is found by looking at how verse 2 begins. It says, in that day. That is to say, Isaiah is looking, uh, prof- he's prophetically looking ahead. Within the immediate context of Isaiah, if you were just to sort of read, especially chapters 24 to 27 maybe tonight, and you noticed every time that phrase, in that day, was used, you'd see that Isaiah is using it to speak of a day in which God accomplishes his final victory over his enemies and the enemies of his people. So one of the differences between Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27 is time. Isaiah 5's vineyard song is about God's people in history, in the midst of their sin. They've turned away from him. They've turned toward other gods, other nations, other sources of help. But Isaiah 27 is a picture of the future. In the days of the Lord's final victory, this will be the song that is sung over his people. And this future reality of verses 2 through 6, I think it's confirmed by our own experience in the present. Well, in verse 4, the Lord could only wish for thorns and briars to to attack, to show his love. We don't need to search very hard to find unproductive, unfruitful things opposed to the Lord in his vineyard. For example, we see the thorns and briars of false converts and false teaching and sin mixed throughout the Lord's vineyard, his church. So I think Isaiah 27 is pointing us ahead to look to a future day, the the day of the Lord's final victory. So how do we get from the miserable, unproductive vineyard uh, to this pleasant, fruitful one of this future day? To put the question more specifically to us, how does God move us into the happy reality that's described in verses 2 through 6? How does he prepare us for the enjoyment of those things, the full enjoyment of those things? I think the answer to that question is, is of great practical importance to us. In fact, I think unless we hear Isaiah's answer, we're going to have not just a skewed understanding of our passage, but we're going to have a skewed understanding of the whole Christian life. 
We're not going to be able to make sense of the Christian experience if we don't get what Isaiah is saying here. I think we'll oftentimes be very confused, if not frustrated, and we'll also be deprived of a great deal of joy. It's because one of the key ways that God prepares us for and will bring us into the enjoyment of verses 2 through 6, it's through affliction, through trial, and through hardship. So if one of the ways that God intends to bring us into that joy, which is described in the early part of our chapter, is affliction and discipline, and we're not prepared for that, we're going to be exceedingly disoriented and distraught when he begins doing that work. And when he is doing that work, and when he is moving us toward that fuller experience of his joy, if we don't realize what he's actually doing in that, we'll miss an opportunity to find joy in God as we see him through affliction preparing us for life with him. So as we look at verses 7 and following, we'll see that God chooses to use affliction and hardship to prepare us for the full realization of those happy conditions found in verses 2 through 6. In verse 7, we're no longer looking to a future day, but suddenly we're looking back again. We're looking uh, to Judah's own past and the hard realities that she's faced. In Judah's case, the hard realities were uh, the withering uh, invasions by foreign powers that God had sent in response to the people's sin. God had sent these afflictions on Judah to turn them away from her sin and idolatry. But some saw the strokes uh, that Judah had received and wondered, uh, how, could, how does this make sense? How could, how could it be true that God is for his people if he also sends these things upon them? If this is how he deals with them? If he afflicts them in this way? You, of course, might be able to reframe the question for yourself. If God has pledged to be for his people, for me, why do I have to endure the heartbreak of a straying child? Or how can God be for me if he takes away my marriage? Or how can he be for me if he afflicts me with inescapable pain? How could God allow his people to endure such terrible afflictions if he is supposedly for them, if he supposedly loves them? Why would God do this? Sending difficulties that seem so great, so profound, that it feels as if their whole purpose is to consume us. We wonder, does God despise us? Well, no. No, not if you belong to him, not if you are his through Christ. And the point which verse, verses 7 through 11 are, is making is that God's people, though we suffer afflictions now, and sometimes these are immense afflictions, Terrible afflictions, causing us to, to even despair of life itself. They're not the same afflictions as those endured by the ungodly. When God afflicts his people, when he sends upon them great hardships, he does so in a manner that is measured, that's purposeful, that proceeds from his love. When he afflicts the ungodly, it's just for their condemnation. When God afflicted his people, Judah, Isaiah says, two things were true of his afflicting work. 
His afflicting work was measured and it was purposeful. And this sets God's afflicting work toward his people in a radically different category than his judgment upon the wicked. First of all, God's use of affliction in the lives of his people is always measured. Isaiah asked rhetorically whether God had struck his his, uh, own people in the same way that he has struck the people uh, uh, who God used against them, their enemies. And the implied answer in this is certainly not. The instruments who God had used to chastise or discipline his people, they were dealt with far more severely than God had dealt with his own people. Today, if you were to look at the history of the nations that God had used to discipline his people, such as Assyria or Babylon, you would see that God had dealt with them far more severely than he had dealt with his own people. And though God certainly did discipline his people, the rod of affliction that he wielded was always wielded by his hand of mercy. With his own people, God had displayed himself to be uh, careful and precise in his use of affliction. Now, there's some debate in the, over the Hebrew in verse 8, but if the ESV is correct in its translation, measure by measure, the idea is that the Lord uses, makes use of an exact measure when it comes to discipline. Sort of like the oncologist who carefully prescribes the amount of chemotherapy to treat deadly cancer, uh, and he neither dispenses too much, which might destroy the patient, or too little so that it's ineffective, so the Lord afflicts his people. Though at times the Lord may give us uh, more hardship than we feel we can bear, he never gives us more or less affliction that that is needed as he works his purpose in us, his holiness. His use of of discipline is carefully measured. And it's measured toward an end. God afflicts his people as he afflicts his people. He measures it according to a purpose, according to something he is doing. If we can return to the image of of the cancer doctor, he injects, uh, who injects a, a careful measure of poison into the patient for the purpose of eliminating cancer. So God, when he afflicts his people, striking them, sending them away, removing them as our text speaks, he does it for the purpose of eliminating his people's sin. It's purposeful. Verse 9, therefore, indicating this is a logical conclusion about the afflictions just referenced. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones crushed to pieces, No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. This verse is not to say that God forgave his people because they were adequately punished. Their sins were not atoned for. They weren't dealt with because they were sent into exile. That wouldn't fit with what the rest of the Bible teaches us about how sin is dealt with. The moral debt that's incurred by our sin uh, uh, with God can't be paid simply by us sort of enduring the blows of his punishment. No, when God chastises his people, the discipline itself doesn't pay the price, but it's intended to drive God's people to repentance. It's it's designed to, to turn them from sin toward the one who can atone for sin. It's it's only as we are driven to repent and to turn back to God, and in him, more specifically, in his son, Jesus Christ, only then will atonement be found. That's what we see in the middle of verse 9. The purpose in God's discipline was to deal with sin and the full evidence of sin being dealt with was uh, 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 symbolized by a turning 
uh, in the people's idol worship. Right? They, they put away, they destroy the objects of their sin. This was the design of God's afflicting hand, to turn them, to cause them to repent. Now God uses affliction to, to turn us away from sin, to turn us away from relying upon other things and, and to purify us, to draw us back to himself. Now here I want to make an important qualification There's not always a direct relationship between the afflictions that God sends and a particular sin. Okay, that's very important. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace, affirms that while all hardships have a disciplinary purpose in the life of the believer, this does not necessarily mean that a particular hardship is related to a specific act or habit of sin in our lives. In other words, uh, though God is, uh, we, we shouldn't make the conclusion always that God is disciplining me because of X. But it does mean that every expression of discipline has as its intended end conformity to the likeness of Christ, our, our holiness. It's true, Bridges says, that we cannot often see the connection between the adversity and God's purpose. It should be enough for us, however, to know that he sees the connection and the end result that he intends. And yet, while we need to be careful about making or drawing direct and specific connections between God's, the afflictions that God sends and what we see in our own life, we shouldn't overlook or neglect God's underlying purpose in hardship, in affliction, in trial. It's to turn us from sin, to drive us to Him. It's to make us to rely more fully on God. It's to make us fit for our place in His eternal kingdom of righteousness. Now, whereas God's chastisement of His people is measured and purposeful, the affliction that He directs upon the ungodly, it's not aimed at restoration or purification. It's aimed at their destruction. Look at verse 10. It establishes further this stark contrast between the Lord's uh, merciful, loving discipline in the lives of his people and his judgment in, uh, in sending affliction upon the wicked. The fortified city that's mentioned here, I think, is a symbol of the enemies of God and his people. Uh, this picture of a city is used uh, that way only a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 24. So this fortified city, which stands for God's enemies, the city of man. It's pictured in a ruined, wild state. Though it had once been a symbol of power and of might, now animals make their home there. They graze there. It's entirely undone. It's come to ruin. Because the inhabitants did not know God, our text tells us, they were, and they were a people without discernment, they were abandoned, destroyed, and God would show no compassion on them. This is an important contrast that's made. That when God sends affliction upon his people, even when it's an affliction of the hardest sort, it's of an entirely different character from when he sends afflictions upon the rest of the world. Scottish pastor William Still said that the difference between God's chastisements of his own and his judgments on the wicked are as different as heaven is from hell. That's the difference, he said. God's chastisements point us to heaven and his judgments to hell. When God disciplines his people, it is a manifestation of his love for us. As the author of Hebrews said, he disciplines us for our good. Why? 
Well, Hebrews and Isaiah are in complete agreement here. It's so that we might share his holiness. The result of these measured afflictions of the Lord, it's intended to turn God's people from sin and to make them holy. That's what God's doing with the afflictions of Judah in exile. And we might add, it's what God is doing in our own afflictions today. He is going about the business of making us holy, of preparing us for our final estate as his blessed vineyard. Now the final verses turn our attention once again to the future and to the day in which God takes his people who have been prepared by his chastisements and his affliction. And and it points us to the day in which he draws them to himself. You'll notice that once more Isaiah is speaking of things that will happen in that day. And he gives us two pictures of, of that day that speak to the hope that God's people have even as we experience afflictions right now, even as we experience his disciplining hand. In verse 12, the prophet gives us a farming picture. On that day, from the far reaches of the world, the Lord will thresh and glean his people. Now, the idea of threshing here uh, involves a beating or a shaking out uh, to separate the worthless chaff from the valuable or desired grain. And this is a picture of what God will do once the uh, purpose of his afflictions have been accomplished. He'll thresh the world so that his people, distinguished from the world, will emerge. And then he himself will go out and he will scoop each one of his people into his arms. One by one, the text specifies for us, so that not a single one would be lost. There's a tenderness to this picture that the Lord goes about picking up each one of his elect and bringing them to himself. That's, uh, this, this will bring about the purpose behind the trials and affliction as the Lord gathers to himself his purified, his redeemed vineyard. And then there's the image of verse 13, which similarly depicts an ingathering of, of God's people. Those who have been subject to his his discipline will now, at the trumpet blast, return to the Lord and worship on his holy mountain. Now this too is a a picture of the Christian's condition. In one sense, in a partial sense, it's true even now that uh, for the Christian, as we are are gathered through the preaching of the gospel uh, and and the work of the Spirit, and as we come together as, as a church to worship with God's people, there's a sense in which this is realized. And yet this picture, I don't think, uh, is fully realized. It won't be fully realized until that last day on which, of which the Bible speaks. Jesus spoke of it when he said in Matthew 24 that he will return and send forth his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. And just as it's important for us to hear that God has a purpose though oftentimes hidden in our afflictions. It's also important to know that he has an end. He has a termination in view. The failing body, that's a source of constant frustration. The classmate who is making your life miserable, the trying circumstances at work, the fear and anxiety that you cannot seem to overcome, the deeply painful and depleting relationship, Without minimizing the pain of any of these afflictions or hardship, Isaiah is showing us in these verses to steal a phrase from Paul that these are truly momentary afflictions. 
They aren't just measured and purposeful, but they're momentary. Now, it's possible that the moment of our affliction will last for many years. That's certainly what was true for Judah. They were beaten down and driven out by foreign nations for a long time. But the Lord is assuring us that there will come a day when he tenderly gathers each of his people up into his strong arms. And in that day, he brings us into the full and immediate experience of his protection, his provision, his pacification, and his love. And there our sins atoned for, ourselves cleaned and purified, rid of all sin and idolatry, we shall fall upon our faces and worship before the Lord. And at that moment, in that day, as the words of his song of delight, which we read, are sung over us, there will be no affliction that seemed so severe, no discipline that seemed too much. No sorrow which seemed too great to bear, since it was preparing us for this eternal weight of glory. So don't lose heart. Even in your affliction, the Lord is preparing us for incredible things. The Lord has a tremendous future for you if you are in Christ, that He Himself is preparing you for and bringing you to, that lies just on the other side of this veil of tears. Let's pray. Our merciful Father, all praise be to your holy name, for your anger is but for a moment, and your favor is for a lifetime. And though weeping may last for a night, joy comes with the morning. Or that, as Christians, we are people of great hope. You are abounding in mercy. To sinners such as us, Lord, you don't destroy us in your anger, but you place your fatherly hand upon us to correct us, to change us, to purify us, to turn us back to you, and to prepare us for a glorious future that belongs to us because of Christ. Help us, Lord, to see the measured mercy and gracious purposes in your discipline. Keep us, O Lord, as we're so prone to doing, from grumbling or despising this work, though it can seem hard, very hard, oftentimes. Keep before our eyes the end of our salvation so that in faith we might not only endure in affliction, but rejoice in it, for you are preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Unless, Lord, you give us grace to this end, we will surely fall. So grant our request. For Jesus' sake, amen.